This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So, have you ever done something that really made you uncomfortable? That challenged you? That pushed you in ways you hadn't been pushed before? I learned enough Tagalog, so Filipino, in about four to five days to be interviewed live on TV for about five minutes. Tim Ferriss? He has. In fact, Tim's become known as someone who puts himself through all kinds of trials and tests just to push past his comfort zone. It was extremely, extremely stressful, <laughs> to say the least. And uh, certainly doing a performance live in front of cameras. You did it in Tagalog. I didn't even know it was pronounced Tagalog. That was Tagalog. I hope I'm getting it right. <laughs> Tim also learned Brazilian jiu-jitsu in a week. Yeah ended up in a late-night ER because I thought I had fractured one of my ribs. Well, kind of learned. Within the first day. Tim's tried to become a parkour expert. I've seen in, the, say, the chase sequence at the beginning of Casino Royale or some yeah. of the stuff in American Ninja Warrior. Kind of. I ended up tearing three out of my four quadriceps muscles, tearing the flexors in one arm, uh, tearing the infraspinatus in one shoulder. And Tim has attempted to become a rock and roll drummer. Right. So rock and roll drumming as an experiment. And I had a week to prepare to be the drummer for Hot-Blooded for Foreigner to a sold-out audience in a concert. Do you have how long to do this? If you really look at it, probably three to four total days. You to, you to learn how to drum in three or four total days to play Hot-Blooded with Foreigner at a sold-out concert? That's right. And the lead singer didn't make it any easier for me. He came up and stood on the drum kit, put his foot on one of the drums, put his hand on my head. <laughs> it, was, it was fun, wow. but it was very, very stressful. That really happened. But perhaps Tim's greatest challenge was teaching himself to swim. And not only teaching himself how to swim, but learning to do it in open water. I grew up on Long Island, right next to the water. I had a number of near-drowning experiences very young. And uh, water was not my friend. And uh, I think it was age 31 or so, a friend of mine assigned me a New Year's resolution, and I assigned him a New Year's resolution. His, to me, was a one-kilometer open-water swim. And I tried lessons, I tried everything, which failed. I quit all of these different attempts up until the very end of the year, until I found something called Total Immersion, taught by Terry Loughlin. And with a book and access to a small pool, trained, and then before the end of that summer, went out into the ocean and swam not just a kilometer, but a mile open water parallel to shore and came out and felt like Superman. It was one of the proudest moments of my entire life. It was just such a great example 
of how you can use a progression, find a method, and certainly make an attempt to do just about anything that has plagued you in the hmm. past. Okay, here's the big question, Tim, about all this stuff, which is, why? Why did you do all this stuff? Why did you test yourself like that? Well, I think that one of the most empowering things that I've tried to systematically approach and teach is exposing oneself to discomfort so you can expand your actionable sphere of comfort. And it's relatively easy to prove to yourself or to other people that something you might think is impossible is in fact possible, like learning to go from discomfort with putting your face underwater to open water swimming for a quarter to a half a mile in four or five days. That is entirely possible. And once you take a previously impossible feat and make it possible in a short period of time, you start to wonder what other impossibles in my life are entirely possible. On the show today, comfort zone. Ideas about pushing ourselves in ways that may not always be comfortable or even successful, but ways that allow us to grow. From confronting our greatest fears, to expanding our social circles, to challenging the status quo and finding the courage to speak up. And for Tim Ferriss, pushing out of his comfort zone not only conquered his fear of swimming, but also affected how he ran his business and how he lived the rest of his life. Because it's, it's very hard to achieve anything that you want to achieve, certainly anything that you find intimidating if you have the emergency brake on. And there are easy ways to at least take a first step. That step for Tim was back in the early 2000s, before he made a name for himself as an entrepreneur and writer and self-experimenter. At the time, Tim was running a startup. It was a sports nutrition company, and he was taking on a lot of responsibilities. I was effectively a one-man show. Tim was working long hours. 14-plus hour days, chasing time zones. Mostly by himself. I felt trapped in a machine of my own making. And that's when he realized something had to change. I didn't know how to extricate myself from this so-called success. And I felt like I was the absolute traffic jam at every intersection of every decision. I just hated my life. I was miserable. And uh, using stimulants to wind up, using alcohol and other things to wind down, it was an all-consuming enterprise. Tim Ferriss picks up the story from the TED stage. It was a disaster. Felt completely trapped. And I bought a book on simplicity to try to find answers. And I did find a quote that made, made a big difference in my life, which was, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality, by Seneca the Younger, who's a famous Stoic writer. That took me to his letters, which took me to the exercise, premeditatio malorum, which means the premeditation of evils. And in simple terms, this is visualizing the worst-case scenarios in detail that you fear, preventing you from taking action so that you can take action to overcome that paralysis. My problem was monkey mind, super loud, very incessant, just thinking my way through problems doesn't work. I needed to capture my thoughts on paper, so I created a written exercise that I called fear setting, like goal setting for myself. 
So Tim took a notebook and he sketched out three pages. And on that first page, he made three columns. Define, prevent, and repair. And the define column was really in as much detail as possible, listing the worst things that I thought could happen. So at the very top, you would have, you know, what if, dot, dot, dot. And in this case, it was what's the worst that could happen if he finally took a month away from his business? Something Tim hadn't done in years. So I wrote down all of the worst things that could happen and that ranged from I might miss a letter from the IRS that would then lead to some type of audit and so on and so forth. It went on and on and on. And the second column was the prevent column. And that means what could you do to prevent each of these bullets from happening in the defined column. But here's the thing. As soon as I put it on paper, I was like, wait a second, I could change the addresses and so on so that everything, and at the IRS, so that everything goes directly to my accountant instead of my UPS store, right? It's the solution in that case was just so simple. And the last column is this repair. That is for each of these bullets in the define. If they happen, what could I do to repair the damage even a little bit? This is the damage control category. And very often, there are simple answers. So one question to keep in mind as you're doing this first page is, has anyone else in the history of time, less driven, figured this out? Chances are the answer is yes. The second page is simple. What might be the benefits of an attempt or a partial success? So you can see we're playing up the fears and really taking a conservative look at the upside. So if you attempted whatever you're considering, might you build confidence, develop skills, emotionally, financially, otherwise? What might be the benefits of, say, a base hit? Spend 10 to 15 minutes on this. Page three. This might be the most important, so don't skip it. The cost of inaction. Humans are very good at considering what might go wrong if we try something new, say, ask for a raise. What we don't often consider is the atrocious cost of the status quo, not changing anything. So you should ask yourself, if I avoid this action or decision, and actions and decisions like it, what might my life look like in, say, six months, 12 months, three years? Any further out, it starts to seem intangible and really get detailed. Again, emotionally, financially, physically, whatever. And when I did this, it painted a terrifying picture. I was self-medicating. My business was going to implode at any moment, at all times, if I didn't step away. My relationships were fraying or failing. And I realized that inaction was no longer an option for me. So I took the trip and slated for initially four weeks in London, and I was able to extricate myself from my business. I was able to think clearly, finally, for the first time in so long without these demons chasing me from behind, which were these nebulous fears I'd finally trapped on paper. And I extended that trip for somewhere between 15 and 18 months. I traveled around the world, and that entire experience led to the first book, The 4-Hour Workweek. That, that decision, I mean, the, the decision to test your comfort level, to do something that was kind of risky, that turned you into Tim Ferriss. I mean, essentially turned you into the person that you are known for today. Yeah, this is, that's exactly right. And this is, I, sh- I should, uh, just so I don't sound Pollyanna-ish, it's not a panacea. At least a handful of your fears will be well-founded. And uh, that's fair, but you shouldn't assume that to be the case until you've put those fears under a microscope using something like fear setting.
it is a trainable skill. You can make yourself more resilient and you can expand your comfortable sphere of action. But I, look, we all start out the same way, right? Like naked and afraid. (laughs) And I was clothed, but certainly afraid and had that as a dominant driver for 20 plus years. I didn't come in with different programming from anybody else in that respect. But I've been very fortunate to find different exercises and means by which you can train yourself to be more comfortable with discomfort. Tim Ferriss, his latest book is called Tribe of Mentors. He's also the host of the podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. On the show today, comfort zone, ideas about pushing past the things that come easy. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Wix.com, a web platform for creating your own professional website. With Wix, whether it's your first time creating a website or you're a longtime pro, you can do it yourself. Choose from hundreds of stunning templates or start from scratch with drag-and-drop technology and powerful web features. Join over 125 million people already using Wix to create their own websites. Go to wix.com to create yours today. So what will you create? Thanks also to Nest Power Project. Experts say energy bills over 6% of income aren't affordable. But one in five families in America spends more than 20% of income on energy. This Earth Day, meet families behind the struggle and see what the issue looks like in your area at nest.com slash powerproject. From there, you can find help if you need it or give help if you can so that every family can have light in the dark and heat in the cold. That's nest.com slash powerproject. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers from Embedded. Bill Spencer works at a coal mine in Kentucky. And when I start to ask him about a future without coal, he knows what I'm going to say. So if coal goes out, I'm done for. Coal Stories on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, comfort zones. So out of all of the comfort zones that we find ourselves in, like, you know, the lazy boy chair that we are comfortably sitting in, or the TV shows we watch, or the food we choose to eat, or the places we live, it seems like the most common example is social circles. Yeah, I think that it's easy We're talking to people who are similar to us. There's no threat in that. They're not going to reject us. This is organizational psychologist Tanya Menon. I'm an associate professor at The Ohio State University at the Fisher College of Business. And her work is all about networks, like the people we choose to surround ourselves with. This is one of the most basic ideas in psychology, that people form cliques. But what's really fascinating is that any little 
tiny scrap of commonality. We grab onto those as well. So if you and I are the same height, we just feel comfortable standing there talking to each other. And Tanya says, even though it's really hard to force ourselves out of our social comfort zones, we all have the ability to do it. Actually, she sees this every year when she gets a new batch of business school students. Day one, they're so open. At that moment in their lives, they are connecting with everybody. They're in lunch with all different kinds of people. They're sitting with new people. But literally in a matter of weeks, it crystallizes. They all find their friends. They find people who are usually looking just like them, and they sit and cluster together. And that wonderful moment of openness ends. All of those other connections wither away. Anthropologists call this liminality. These moments in our lives where we're just open, we're living in a gray area, we're between worlds. We're out of the boundaries that normally constrain us. It's only a few weeks later where they stop this. I mean, Tanya, it would make sense, like, from an evolutionary standpoint, that we seek out a comfortable group of like-minded people that, that, like, at a certain time, you know, 240,000 years ago, we found people like us who wouldn't kill us, who we could build a community with. Like, it, it, it makes sense why we're like that. Yeah, I think these basic tendencies that, that human beings have, I think it's natural. I think they're critical to our survival. If we're not in trusting relationships with friends and family, uh, many of our basic functions would be impossible. Yeah. And so it's not a problem when we're looking to them for comfort and support. It is a problem when we get stuck, when we need a way out of the world that we're in. Whether it's you've lost a job, you want to change a career, you want to do something different. You're simply at a place in your life where you're in a rut. Tanya Menon picks up this idea from the TED stage. This is when we really pay a price for living in a clique. Mark Granovetter, the sociologist, he had a famous paper called The Strength of Weak Ties, and he asked people how they got their jobs. And what he learned was that most people don't get their jobs through their strong ties, their father, their mother, their significant other. They instead get jobs through weak ties, people who they just met. So if you think about what the problem is with your strong ties, think about your significant other, for example. The network is redundant. Your weak ties, people you just met today, they are your ticket to a whole new social world. The thing is, people always tell me, I want to get a new job, I want to get a great opportunity. And I say, well, that's really hard because your networks are so fundamentally predictable. Map out your habitual daily footpath. And what you'll probably discover is that you start at home, you go to your school or your workplace, you maybe go up the same staircase or elevator, you go to the bathroom, the same bathroom, and the same stall in that bathroom, you end up in the <laughs> gym, then you come right back home. It's like stops on a train schedule. It's that predictable. It's efficient, but the problem is that you're seeing exactly the same people. Make your network slightly more inefficient. Go to a bathroom on a different floor. You encounter a whole new network of people. So the takeaway here is not just take someone out to coffee. 
It's a little more subtle. It's go to the coffee room. A simple change in planning, a huge difference in the traffic of people and the accidental bumps in the network. So Tanya, I I hear you and I want to do this. I want to follow your advice. But but here's the thing, like I am also very introverted and it can be painfully difficult for me to to do that in a group. It's hard for me to do this. So what do you do? What we've discovered is that it's often not introversion and extroversion. What the researchers find particularly powerful is an idea called self-monitoring. Your ability to adapt to other people, to be a social chameleon. So you could be this introvert who is very willing and open to hearing and adapting to people of all different kinds of experiences. Yes, totally. Yes. So um, the people who have these broad bridging networks, they're what we call high self-monitors. The high self-monitors are really skilled at connecting with people even if they don't agree with them. You're simply listening to them without judgment, without injecting your opinion into this. It's like a muscle, and we've just got to get good at exercising it. The minute we meet someone, we're looking at them, we meet them, we're initially seeing, you're interesting, you're not interesting, you're relevant. We do this automatically, we can't even help it. And what I want to encourage you to do instead is to fight your filters. I want you to take a look around this room, and I want you to identify the least interesting person that you see, and I want you to connect with them over the next coffee break, and I want you to go even further than that. What I want you to do is to find the most irritating person you see as well and connect with them. What you are doing with this exercise is you are forcing yourself You are forcing yourself to see what you don't want to see, to connect with who you don't want to connect, to widen your social world. Here's my question for you. What are you doing that breaks you from your social habits? Where do you find yourself in places where you get injections of diversity, unpredictable diversity? So basically, to step out of your comfort zone, you are going to have to experience discomfort. Yeah, you have to experience discomfort, and you have to know that feeling that is associated with it. Maybe it's, you know, geez, I'm scared at this moment that you're going to reject me, or I'm feeling really irritated right now because you and I don't agree with each other. But there's tremendous benefits of, of being able to do this. Getting a new job is one thing. People who have lots of diversity in their networks in this way, they also end up being more creative. They're more likely to be promoted rapidly. And what you're actually doing is enriching yourself, checking your opinions, forcing yourself to confront different ideas. But how, I mean, how wide of a network can an average person handle? I mean, isn't, isn't there like a limit to, to all of this? Absolutely. We don't want to spread ourselves too thin, right? So we have so many connections. We have so many different voices speaking to us. We don't know what to do with them. The problem is we are usually so narrow. We need a little injection of diversity. And human beings, our nature is just to find that in-group, find that similarity. We sometimes need ways to push ourselves out of that habit and create new habits. 
That's organizational psychologist Tanya Menon. You can watch her whole talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about stepping outside your comfort zone and why it's sometimes so hard to do that, to take risks and confront fears and speak up. Can you please introduce yourself? Ah, yes. My name is Lavi Ajayi, and I'm a writer, I'm a speaker, and I say a professional troublemaker because I'm the person who's saying what you're thinking but dared not to. For more than a decade, Lavi's been writing and blogging about things that are sometimes hard to discuss, things like racism and privilege and why men and women are paid differently for the same job. And Lovey feels it's her role to push people outside their comfort zones. My goal is to kind of disrupt the status quo and at least point out what's absurd about the world so maybe people will be more willing to disrupt it in their area too. Does, does speaking up and speaking out about truths ever challenge your comfort zone? Oh, absolutely. Every day hmm. that I'm speaking up about truths that are hard challenges me. Those are the times. The times that it's really scary is when it's most necessary. Lovey spoke about her own struggles leaving her comfort zone from the TED stage. Now let's talk about fear. Fear has a very concrete power of keeping us from doing and saying the things that are our purpose. I'm not going to let fear rule my life. I'm not going to let fear dictate what I do. Anything that scares me, I'm going to actively pursue it. I went skydiving. We were about to fall out the plane. I was like, I've done some stupid things in life. This is one of them. <laughs> and then we come falling down to earth, and I literally lose my breath as I see earth. And I was like, I just fell out of a perfectly good plane on purpose. <laughs> what is wrong with me? But then I looked down at the beauty, and I was like, this is the best thing I could have done. This is an amazing decision. And I think about the times when I have to speak truth. It feels like I am falling out that plane. It feels like that moment when I'm at the edge of the plane, and I'm like, you shouldn't do this. But then I do it anyway, because I realize I have to. Sitting at the edge of that plane and kind of staying on that plane is comfort to me. And I feel like every day that I'm speaking truth against institutions and people who are bigger than me and, and just forces that are more powerful than me, I feel like I'm falling out of that plane. But I realize comfort is overrated because being quiet is comfortable. Keeping things the way they've been is comfortable. And all comfort has done is maintain the status quo. So we've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable by speaking these hard truths when they're necessary. I want to drill down on this a little bit, on this idea of of speaking truths, right? Like yeah. there's this famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that was written in like the 40s, you know, and it's his bestseller. And basically his message is like, just keep quiet, you know, Ugh. smile. And, no. and and that can work. That really can work um, in a lot of cases. But But it means that nothing changes. It means nothing changes. It's how we find ourselves... 60 years down the line, still dealing with the same problems we had 60 years ago. Yeah. It's because we insist that comfort is better than anything, when comfort typically means somebody else is somewhere suffering because of our comfort. So I completely disagree with the idea you should just shut up and <laughs> just be the wallflower, because when you shut up because somebody else is, is burning, yeah. what happens when you're burning? If everybody else shuts up, nobody calls 911 for you. Yeah. 
We can't afford to sit around and just wait for somebody else to do what we think is important to be done. When it's time to say these hard things, I ask myself three things. One, did you mean it? Two, can you defend it? Three, did you say it with love? If the answer is yes to all three, I say it and let the chips fall. Like a time when I was asked to speak at a conference, and they wanted me to pay my way there. And then I did some research and found out the white men who spoke there got compensated and got their travel paid for. The white women who spoke there got their travel paid for. The black women who spoke there were expected to actually pay to speak there. And I was like, what do I do? And I knew that if I spoke up about this publicly, I could face financial loss. But then I also understood that my silence serves no one. I got to do this. I got to sit at the edge of this plane, maybe for two hours. And I did. And I pressed publish, and I ran away. <laughs> and I came back to a viral post, and people were being like, "Oh my God, I'm so glad somebody finally said this." So many people have been the domino when they talk about how they've been assaulted by powerful men. And it's made millions of women join in and say, "Me too." People and systems count on our silence to keep us exactly where we are. And in a world that wants us to whisper, I choose to yell. You know, one of the, I mean, as as we've discussed on on this episode, like um, we can push out of our comfort zones by forcing ourselves to try new things or finding friends um, who are different than us, but. One of the one of the really hard things for many people to do, one of the really one of the things that really pushes people out of their comfort zone is talking about race. Yeah. Yeah. It's here's the thing. It's like if you break your arm and they say just act like you didn't break it. It doesn't heal the bone. <laughs> you actually have to go put something on the arm to grow the bone back. We've got to look at racism like that. So the discomfort in talking about race, I feel like if you hear, it's basically the desensitizing of a topic. Um, we have to talk about it more and more and more until yeah. everyone realizes that it's something that you have to confront. It's something that is actually moving us backwards. Yeah. Do you think, I always wonder, I wonder like, do you think people are, some people are, afraid to talk about race because in some ways it, it starts to challenge the way they see themselves and their place in the world? Absolutely. When you have to talk about race, you actually have to acknowledge the problems. And then you also have to kind of acknowledge the role that you might play, whether subconscious or just by your um, existence as a member of a group that's not marginalized. So it kind of is damning to talk about it because when you understand the reality of racism and you understand the reality of privilege, then you actually have to start understanding that you're not just an innocent bystander in a system that you inherited, that every single day you're benefiting from it in some way. Because then when you walk in a room, you can be like, okay, with this privilege, what am I going to do with it? See, the problem is when people have the privilege and only use it to benefit themselves or people who look just like them or live life just like them. That's when it's a problem. How do you begin to make people understand that getting uncomfortable 
is good for them. That actually getting yeah. out of that zone, whether it's talking about race or privilege or truth, is is actually good for them and for everybody. Well, here's the thing. Comfort kind of keeps you in the same place. Yeah. Like, there's no growth. Not being comfortable, the whole idea of charting new territories and speaking up and just doing the thing that you had to talk yourself into, it's a constant practice. Every single day. It doesn't matter if you wake up scared. What what happens is that, okay, what are you doing with it? Like, if if every decision you're making is based on the fact that you don't want to challenge yourself or you don't want to be afraid— that's when you get really comfortable and then you don't grow. Yeah. I mean, how do we do it? Like, what's what's the roadmap when, when we need to get out of our comfort zones but we're too afraid? I'll ask, what's, what are you most afraid of? That, that'll be the first question. Second question is, what is the worst that could happen? And then what if in 20 years you ask yourself, what if I had done that? How would my life be different? Because I think it's important to live a life that's more of a oh, well, I tried, then, oh, I wish I would have tried that. Love you, Ajayi. Her book is called I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. You can find her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about comfort zones. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Microsoft Surface Laptop. At just under three pounds and with up to 14 and a half hours of battery life, Surface Laptop lets you binge watch your favorite shows whenever and wherever you want. Do more with Surface Laptop, thin, light, and beautiful. I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today comfort zones, ideas about the ways we can push ourselves to become better, to grow, and to explore new places, even if it's just by reading a book. Storytelling is a shared human impulse. We all do it in one way or another. And that's an incredibly inspiring thing, that we all want to share our stories. This is Anne Morgan. And a couple of years ago, Anne was in graduate school for journalism when she started a blog. Called A Year of Reading Women to spend some time reading books by women writers because I realized at the time most of the books I'd read and indeed most of the books I'd studied on my degree course were written by men. Yeah. Now, when I was doing this blog, I got a very few people reading it, but this one guy, he came and he left a comment on the blog saying that there was a book he really wanted me to read uh, by an Australian writer and it was Cloud Street by Tim Winton. And I was thinking, mm, okay, uh, sounds great, but I'll have to read it next year because obviously I'm reading women this year yeah. and he's not a woman. And so I said, well, maybe I'll do a blog next year. I hadn't really thought about it, but uh, it would need to have some kind of angle. So he said, well, what about books from different countries? And my first response was, what? Who does he think I am? Doesn't he know that I'm, you know, I'm a really cultured person? What kind of a Philistine does he take me for? And then I looked at my bookshelves and I realized, actually, hang on, I 
didn't read that books from that many different countries. In fact, pretty much all the books on my bookshelves were written in English. Chaucer, Shakespeare and Milton, Jane Austen, Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift. But not much beyond that, and certainly very little that had been translated from other languages. And that came as a real shock to me, because I thought, hey, this is crazy. You know, there's this whole other world out there that I've closed my eyes to, that I've not even realised was there. Um, suddenly, it was as though someone had switched on a light and all these invisible bookshelves that had been hidden in the dark lit up and stretched off as far as the eye could see. And all these stories that I just hadn't even thought were there suddenly started to clamour for my attention. Hmm. And so I thought, well, what can I do? And 2012 was shaping up to be a very international year for the UK because we had the Olympics coming and the Queen's Jubilee and there was a lot of excitement about people from all over the world coming to visit. And so I thought, well, that would be a good year to do a very international reading project. So I thought, why don't I do a year of reading the world? And rather than simply reading books from different countries, see if I can read a book from every country. And Morgan picks up the story from the TED stage. After I'd worked out which of the many different lists of countries in the world to use for my project, I ended up going with the list of UN-recognized nations to which I added Taiwan, which gave me a total of 196 countries. And after I'd worked out how to fit reading and blogging about roughly four books a week around working five days a week, I then had to face up to the fact that I might not even be able to get books in English from every country. Only around 4.5% of the literary works published each year in the UK are translations. And the figures are similar for much of the English-speaking world, although the proportion of translated books published in many other countries is a lot higher. 4.5% is tiny enough to start with, But what that figure doesn't tell you is that many of those books will come from countries with strong publishing networks and lots of industry professionals primed to go out and sell those titles to English-language publishers. So, for example, although well over 100 books are translated from French and published in the UK each year, most of them will come from countries like France or Switzerland. French-speaking Africa, on the other hand, will rarely ever get a look in. The upshot is that there are actually quite a lot of nations that may have little or even no commercially available literature in English. Their books remain invisible to readers of the world's most published language. But when it came to reading the world, the biggest challenge of all for me was the fact that I didn't know where to start. Having spent my life reading almost exclusively British and North American books, I had no idea how to go about sourcing and finding stories and choosing them from much of the rest of the world. I couldn't tell you how to source a story from Swaziland. I wouldn't know a good novel from Namibia. There was no hiding it. I was a clueless, literary xenophobe. So how on earth was I going to read the world? Yeah, I mean, as you started to look for these books from around the world that were unfamiliar or challenging to you how did you uh how did you even get them because you can't i'm assuming you can't just go to amazon and and type some of these books in right so what did you would you do so i had because i had lots of people leaving comments um initially i i sort of followed the leads the suggestions that people made 
But then when it came to countries that didn't have books that you could buy easily online or in bookshops, I had to get creative. So the the most challenging of all the countries when I was trying to find literature was Sao Tome and Principe, which is a a small African island nation off the west coast of Africa. Hmm. And Portuguese is one of the official languages there. But uh, although there are books published, there was nothing that I could find to buy in English translation. I really wasn't sure that I was going to manage to find anything from there. And then one day, my husband, he said, well, why don't you see if you can get people to translate something for you? Hmm. And I thought, who's going to want to do that? That's insane. You know, that's a huge amount of work to ask someone to do. But what was amazing was that within a week of me putting a call out on social media for anyone who could speak Portuguese who might be willing to volunteer some time, I had more people than I could actually involve. And I, I found this collection of short stories by a woman who was born in Saratomi and Principe, and I bought enough copies to be able to send one out to each of the translators and divided it up, asked each of them to take a few of the short stories on, and they all stuck to their words and sent back their translations. And wow. within six weeks, I had the entire Amazing. book to read. So, I mean, you were a very well-read person, but but reading in a certain context, probably a lot of the yeah. books took place in Europe against a European mm-hmm. backdrop, landscape, history. Yeah. So, so, so you could contextualize these more or less yeah. w- with you know with ease. These books must have been really challenging for you. A lot of these books must have really pushed you to yeah. your sort of your limits. Absolutely. There were a lot of assumptions that we take for granted uh, when we look at the world and when we tell stories and assumptions that we we make about what our person on the other side of the story will think. And these assumptions don't hold true when you're looking at stories from very different cultures where you're not the target audience. So those can be assumptions that range from anything from morality and ideas about uh, what's acceptable when it comes to sexuality, through to religious beliefs, through to gender roles. We don't even necessarily realise those assumptions are there because, for example, when I was reading stories from one of the 70 plus countries where homosexuality is still illegal, I found myself coming up against assumptions that I didn't share. Hmm. And that was a challenge. But vice versa, I found that by reading books that were built on very different ideas about what was normal and what was acceptable, I started to see some of the narrownesses in the way that I looked at the world and in the kind of stories that I was used to reading as well. So it worked both ways. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you must have just become smarter about the world, exposed to ideas that you never even knew about. I think certainly more conscious of the complexity and the fact it's so easy to um, make assumptions about situations that we know very little about. And particularly for those of us who speak English, we have this tendency, but I think everyone does. We all think of ourselves as being at the centre of our own universe, of course, because we're all we're all at the centre of our own film. You know, we all live in the middle of our own life. Mm. Um, but actually going out there and reading stories that are written by people who live in very different universes and live at the centre of very different worlds shows you how different the worlds out there are and how how your own world is flawed and small in a way that perhaps you, you didn't realise before. Anne Morgan, her blog, A Year of Reading the World, is now a book. It's called The World Between Two Covers, Reading the Globe. You can see her full talk at TED.com. 
Do you ever uh, kind of look at your life and say, I'm, I need to shake things up. It's too comfortable. Yeah, I do. This is Dan Pallada. He's an author and an activist. Sometimes I look at my life and I think, wow, I've stepped out of my comfort zone a lot. And sometimes I think I, I need to venture into new ideas. Dan's probably best known as the creator of multi-day charity events, things like the AIDS Ride Bicycle Ride and the Breast Cancer Three-Day Walk, events that raised close to $600 million for charities. And Dan says today, our society seems to have stopped dreaming big, stopped moving outside its comfort zone to accomplish big things. Here's Dan's idea from the TED stage. I was eight when I watched Neil Armstrong step off the lunar module onto the surface of the moon. I'd never seen anything like it before, and I've never seen anything like it since. We got to the moon for one simple reason. John Kennedy committed us to a deadline. And in the absence of that deadline, we would still be dreaming about it. Leonard Bernstein said, two things are necessary for great achievement. A plan and not quite enough time. (laughs) Deadlines and commitments are the great and fading lessons of Apollo. And they are what give the word moonshot its meaning. And our world is in desperate need of political leaders willing to set bold deadlines for the achievement of daring dreams on the scale of Apollo again. If you go back and watch documentary footage of Gene Krantz, who was the flight director at Mission Control, or any of the astronauts talking about that time, they tear up these engineers, they cry openly at the beauty of what that was and at the beauty of what we did. And we don't have goals for anything. We don't have a deadline for ending poverty. We don't have a deadline for ending hunger. We don't have a deadline for curing cancer. Apollo was the last time the United States as a nation put its you-know-what on the line for something daring and incredible. And I think grown men and women yearn to weep uh, at the sight of accomplishments on that scale again. Absolutely. I mean, I agree. I mean, but, but that's huge and, and ambitious. Where do you even start? I think the key is you start small. Stepping out of your comfort zone doesn't necessarily mean you have to do something huge. It could be something very little. You know, I I read an article yesterday. I can't remember who wrote the woman who wrote it. And she said, what if I don't want to end hunger in Africa, uh, but I just want to help people in my own community? And like we grew up in this change the world age, and sometimes I wonder if it isn't part of the problem, if us all working on global issues and overlooking the local issues and neighborliness. And, you know, we have an abundance of the word community and a deficit of actual community. So I think that's whence a lot of our problems stem. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, you're, you're saying that these big dreams might in a way come at the expense of like meaningful connections that we have with people in our communities or or even our personal relationships? I think there's a dream deficit. It's about the need to dream in two dimensions. 
that we are kind of dreaming on the doing side of things. Self-driving cars and all kinds of IPOs for new dot-coms and where we don't dream is in the emotional side of our lives, uh, that we can't get any better at understanding one another. And that's where I think the dreaming deficit is. And, and I think we're trying to solve too many of our problems in the domain of doing and thinking we can completely bypass the domain of being. Well, if you really want to get to the root cause, I think the root cause lives in our inability to be with one another. I mean, I think a part of what you're talking about is personal vulnerability, right? Because for many of us, being vulnerable and showing vulnerability is as difficult as the race to the moon. I mean, that, that is a valid testing of one's comfort zone. Absolutely. And, you know, like I remember at a young age, I guess it was 18 or something, and our next door neighbor had passed away and I was with my dad in the yard. My, my dad was a construction worker. He's still living, but he's no longer a construction worker. And I, I wanted to tell him that I loved him, you know. And uh, I remember that took an enormous amount of courage to say, Dad, and him say, look at me and say, what? And I said, I love you. And uh, that was a big leap out of my comfort zone. Why? Because it, it sort of comes from completely out of left field, right? You're used to talking to your dad about, hey, run down to the hardware store and get me some PVC pipe for this plumbing we're going to repair or, uh, or gossip, right? You know, that's the, the level of conversation to elevate it to. I, I love you. It's just a whole different playing field. And, and it's a risk, right? Because... Because he might say, what's wrong with you? Is something wrong with you? <laughs> you know, let me, don't talk like that. He didn't say that, you know, he said, I love you back to me. And I wanted to have that kind of relationship with my dad and with my mom. I didn't want them to die without them knowing at the deepest level how much I appreciated them and felt about them. It is our inability to be with one another that gives rise to so many of the problems we are frantically trying to solve in the first place, from congressional gridlock to economic inhumanity. We should not shrink from this opportunity simply because we don't really understand it. That is the very definition of being stuck in a comfort zone. It is the dimension of our being itself that cries out for its fair share of our imagination. It's time for us to dream in multiple dimensions simultaneously. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you very much. Dan Pallotta, you can see his entire talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show Comfort Zone this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. And you can listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. You can do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Diva Motasham. 
Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Also, you can write directly to us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org, and you can tweet us. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.